Welcome to Research Lives and Culture, the podcast that offers conversations about the research environment. Each week I interview someone who works or has previously worked in research. We discuss about the approach they have taken to navigate their career, the critical decisions they have made, the joys they have had in their work, and the challenges that they have faced. I ask questions about what a supportive research environment really looks like, and about the actions that we can take to help the research culture empower people to thrive. My name is Dr. Sandrine Sou. I am a coach, facilitator, and trainer for the research environment, and your host on this podcast. I am committed to ease the path to research careers by sharing stories of researchers' lives. Hello everyone, in this podcast interview, I discuss with Asimwe Joytu, who comes from Uganda Christian University. I came across uh, uh, Asimwe through the Nemora Network, which is a network of researchers in Uganda. They come together to discuss research and to support each other in their professional development. Asimwe is a member of such network. In this interview, she talks about uh, how she came to do a PhD I hope you enjoy the conversation that I have with her. So Asimwe, I don't know very much about you. And through common contact through Lois, she invited you to come and be interviewed for this podcast. So I'll be really interested to hear about you. How did you come to work in academia? What's your path into academia? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. I, I came to do work in academia when I was working from the field. I first worked in the community. And in the community, I was uh, working on a child development project as a child development officer. So after working a lot there, I realized there were many problems. There were issues to do with poverty and issues to do with uh, planning. I did a lot of work on planning, writing plans, proposals, soliciting funding, also doing community needs, assessments. I worked both in an urban area and a rural area, but the most challenging was the urban area. So that's why I felt like uh, we don't have enough knowledge about how to go about uh, meeting the needs of the communities. So around that time, I was motivated to undertake further studies for a master's degree. And after I'd completed the master's degree, I realized the employer had no space for a master's degree. It was kind of a big thing for them. So although I had the interest in a university work, because my performance could, could tell me that I can also do assistant lecturer, so I approached a university in my neighborhood, which was also connected to the work I was doing that time with the church. I mainly worked with the Church of Uganda. So I, I went to Uganda Christian University. So I got a, a teaching post. They were very much in need of uh, a lecturer for project planning and management. And therefore, I found my way into the teaching because I could do teaching project planning and management. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the type of uh, work, what you were, were looking in children? Was it about health, about education? That work was about child development and it was holistic. So it was holistic, looking at the child's needs, 
in all aspects of life. There were aspects especially of poverty, developing the child to make them cope with the future. Because we looked, the major entry was education, getting them sponsorship from donors, give sponsorship to the child to get education. However, to get education is holistic. You may find school fees or tuition, but then the child needs welfare. They may need clothing, they may need good health. So it was holistic, encompassing child health, encompassing the community social well-being, including the household income and the child needs. So it was so, it was a complex kind of intervention. So our needs assessment would take us to assess what is the biggest need of this child, child per child. So when we looked at most, most of the needs were about poverty, general. It would even be about nutrition. So we uh, would plan also for healthy meals uh, at the church. would also plan for scholastic materials, even giving them extra lessons to revise their schoolwork so that the children can be able to cope with the rest. So it was uh, a whole package of the child development. I did a master's in development studies, and this development studies was about local and regional development. So it was, uh, again, to do with a lot of planning, uh, a lot of looking at opportunities that people have and how they can harness them. And uh, on this, I actually got a scholarship to go to the Institute of the Social Studies in the Netherlands, located in The Hague. So this external exposure also was a learning exercise. I met a lot of peers from all over the world and also exposure to another community where I was able to learn about many, many opportunities that can come out around us. So uh, in addition, this helped me to feel confident that I have enough, a, a lot of knowledge that I could share across. Therefore, I thought if, if I go into teaching, I will be able to reach out to many students who come, share with them, organize a curriculum that fits the context, and then be able to deliver some learning for many other students. That was in the year 2001 to 2002. Do you feel that in, in some ways through teaching within the university context, the impact that you could have in terms of influencing what happens in the communities? Did, did you feel that the reach you could have was enhanced? Is that what made you decide to basically shift from working in the community to working in a university? Yes, mostly that. Because I, in the community, I had a small area to do the work. And in any case, it wouldn't give me uh, time to move to the university. Actually, when I used, went to the university, I was asked to do it part-time, but I said, no, the community needs time and the academic work also needs time. So I really moved into academia. And uh, as you said, you're right to say that I, I found that I would talk to many students. I would have a big class to talk to and also to try and read more about the problems that we have. My, my major driving force was actually urban poverty. Urban poverty for me was strange. There were very limited opportunities. It was, uh, it, it, for me, it looked a bigger, a bigger issue than just an individual. Although when I worked in the rural, I could see that in the rural area, there, there are things that you can encourage people to do. But in the urban area, they have done almost everything 
everything they can, but they still they are not they are not released. They are they are kind of held up by certain conditions around them. So I found that I needed to read more a lot about <laughs> read more, find a way of solving the problems that in the urban area. And that leads me to now what I'm doing for my PhD at Uganda Management Institute. Here I'm doing public management of uh, urban solid wastes in collaboration with the communities. So my approach is still communities are doing something, but they need to have some empowerment from, say, the policymakers, the government. I'm still looking for that solution, maybe an attempt, an effort that can talk to the problems of the community. If I understand you co correctly, so, so now your PhD is about finding ways for people who work in the communities and who work on urban po poverty to feel more empowered, to working more with external stakeholders, with the government or all the agencies. Is that what your, your, what your thesis is about? Yes, my thesis is about public management of urban solid waste, looking at community collaboration. I'm calling it community network perspective because I think they do a lot of their work. They, they have problems with the urban solid wastes, but there are some, there are some who actually re reuse and recycle those items. So they would want to do that work to get themselves out of poverty, and, uh, but they can't do so much. Or if they do, they cannot gain from it very well unless they work in collaboration with the government structure. So on one side, I'm having the Kampala Capital City Authority as one of my variables. And on another hand, I'm looking at community initiatives. And they are working, their kind of relationship in work where and how the collaboration actually uh, works for them. Does it help them? Does it support them? And why it doesn't it support them? I'm, I'm trying to look at why wouldn't they support the communities who actually this work do this work cheaply. They do it with, with interest, with motivation. And so how can the government structure, which is the Kampala Capital City Authority, how can it support them to make them uh, better on doing the work, deliver the service, and also gain from it, they have some livelihoods out of it. So why did you decide to study now, not 20 years ago? And how have you, during that time, you must have done a lot of teaching and, and a lot of work. Can you tell us a little bit about this, this period, these last 20 years? <laughs> yes, last 20 years has been long to study. But mainly because, because of the, my status as a mother, a housewife, I didn't look at doing uh, engaging in a PhD at that time. I, I kept at the level of a lecturer at the assistant level because I, I thought I should first take care of my family. Mm -hmm. uh, when I went to study, I had a child who was one year old and I was not allowed to travel with my child. I was told, no, leave the child behind. The child was one year and one month. So I had to stay for one year and... Uh, and um, three months and a half. My husband took care of the child, other relatives came and took care of the child, but it was somehow emotional, emotional draining to, to be away from a, such a young child at that age. 
So I told myself, I'm going to teach, but I'm not going to study very soon. Basically, also that uh, I couldn't study at home. It's quite costly to do a, a PhD. And uh, so I told myself, let me first do some a little work here and there, community work, teach, help the teachers to teach. And so I took time and then that was my first child. So after like five years, I got my second child. Then the child had to grow fast. <laughs> so at, at the time when I felt that I, I had time on myself, then I said, let me look for a PhD. And uh, when I looked for it, I really wanted to do it in my home country so that again, I stay nearer, closer to my family. I'm also a older in my family, like I'm a second born. So I do a lot of support to my other siblings. I have to support my parents. So I had to first do all that. And then now I feel I have time on myself. So that's how I've come to study now. And this is a challenge to uh, even writing. So, but now because my family is a bit more stable, my children are big, I can let them go and then I do my studies. It is fascinating how many sacrifices people have to make when they want a career in, in research and in academia. And uh, you describing leaving your child behind to go and do your master, it, it takes a huge amount of resilience to accept to do that. And, and it's interesting yeah. because now transitioning to doing a PhD, when you feel that there is more stability and it's easier to study because your children are older, there is still a, a toll in the family because studying for a PhD takes a lot of, uh, lot of reading and writing. How are you negotiating that part in terms of the many different elements that you have between your job, looking after your family, and the time that you have to invest in the reading and the writing? How do you create a balance for yourself? Yeah, I'm trying to create a balance by finding time off. When at this stage, my children can go to school most of the time. And so when they have gone to school, then I have time for myself. They actually all attend boarding schools. So apart from this lockdown, they've been away. So I found some quiet time to do my work. Then for teaching takes a lot of time, but I've had to ask for, I asked for uh, study leave, which could give me a lot, a little more time off my studies for at least two years, two years off where I had reduced time on teaching. Otherwise the teaching would really occupy me. But in the last one year, okay, with the lockdown, I've had time, but the other two years behind, I asked for study leave, which was granted and given me some time to say now, let me not take the course, let me go study. And that was very, very helpful from my university. That's really interesting because it's true that uh, sometimes we, we don't ask for help. We are trying to do everything. So the fact mm -hmm. that you went and asked and focus on that study and daring because some people may be scared to ask the department saying no or the university being upset with you. But actually you went and asked. So it's uh, it's brilliant. And sometimes we are surprised how the university is prepared to let us take some, some time to study and allowing you to have yeah. the focus that's necessary. So where are you at in your PhD? How much more have you got to do? I would say I'm on the last stages. I have already completed the first draft. I had a seminar a month ago. I had a seminar with my supervisors and a few peers. And if they listen to the, the work, the further that I've come, 
And right now I'm trying to respond to the comments they gave me in that seminar. I'm, I'm doing the second draft, which is likely to be the, the last draft because, because of time again. I'm being told time, time, time up. And so I'm doing, uh, I'm doing the last draft out. What yeah. have you found the most exciting about undertaking this PhD? There'll be lots of people in the NEMRA network, maybe who are trying to consider whether to do a PhD or not, and also may consider, should I do a PhD in Uganda? Should I mm -hmm. go to South Africa, to another African country, or should I go abroad in Europe or the US or wherever? So mm -hmm. what, what do you think for you, for you personally has been something that's been really rewarding as part of that you know, journey? That's a challenging journey, but uh, what's been great for you? Yeah, what has been great for me is that I've realized that knowledge uh, has to be constructed and reconstructed and reconstructed. And somehow in my all my uh, studies, I've, I've always thought about where does another idea come from? Where do ideas keep coming from? So it was fascinating for me to find out, oh, When I, when I read, when I look at frameworks, I've acquired certain skills that help me to be independent, to think independently, and to make a contribution in terms of uh, knowledge. Because all along I was reading other people's things. And then I'm also surprised that so much has been written. So much is being written. As I looked around, I would say, this question is there. Let me find out who, who has done something about it. Then I find that somebody has written so much about it. Several people have written so much about it. There is so much knowledge and the horizon keeps growing and growing. So I was uh, really very surprised about that. There is a pool of experts that, that I look to. For instance, in NEMRA, I found people whom I could rely on for advice, for support, Because I used to hear that PhD is a lonely journey. And I would say, how, what do they mean by lonely? Because I'm now discovering that it's about you're trying to follow up an idea and on it alone. But, but what can you be helped about? Who, can, who else can support? Then I find that you actually, what, you need, what I need is skills. The skills like writing skills, researching skills even library skills to help me reach out to what I'm looking for instead of really being alone. <laughs> alone and looking for something and never finding it sometimes. And, uh, okay, writing something and think that I have found it. And then somebody says, actually, no, actually, look elsewhere, look like this way. So I found it very fascinating that I cannot think alone. I have to think with others. I have to read other people's work and, and, and support my own work. And then, then it be able to become an idea that makes sense. When we look at the literature and we see, oh, this person has written so beautifully, or oh, their ideas are amazing. Who am mm. I to be proposing some new ideas? How to, do you kind of cope with that, the academic world can be quite intimidating. So how have you yourself kind of given yourself confidence that your ideas matter, that your ideas will make a difference to drive you to believe in what you want to do? Yeah, what, what is helping me there is uh, to, to have a framework of thinking because I have learned that uh, every writing, every idea has to be supported. 
has to have a context. It has to be supported by theory, theoretical frameworks, philosophical frameworks, and then come up with ideas. But also to to appreciate others, appreciate others, and again look at how how are they doing it? How how do they come up with an idea like this? And and then how my ideas can be supported instead of being pulled down. For instance, such like data analysis, for instance. I find that data analysis is done in different ways, but then I have to I have had to listen to others and say, oh, why did you use this method and not the other one? And then wow, it supports the new ideas. So I found it a really scientific process instead of naturally, like before I started on this journey, I would I would wonder where people get really ideas. Where do they get ideas? If I'm to write, what are, what will I be writing in any case? How long can I write? How long will it take me to stay consistently uh, doing an idea? But I found that actually, once I have a framework that I'm building on, it's it's kind of building a shell house, and then find that in any case, if it's a shell, then I have to fill in the parts that are missing. So for me, it has been to discover how different people have actually built up uh, their work. They have built up their skills and they have built up their studies. So that's the way I look at it. Talking about writing, can you tell us a little bit about your own approach? And one of the things that I'm always fascinated about is the habits that people develop to actually have the consistency of writing. Can you tell us about your own habits? Is there a special time? Do you always write at the same time in the day? Or how do you mm. get on with your own writing? Yeah, my own writing, uh, I've been writing mainly in response to, to conference themes. Really, I began from looking at conference papers. So I see a conference call and I'm like, oh, this is an interesting one. So I begin writing towards that theme. So as I begin developing the idea on that theme, then I look at what ideas I have so that I can put in. Mainly they would be from my, the subject matter, my subject matter, so that I move with them. And all along my academic career, I had the blueprints, the rules of writing is like, you must have a good introduction, catch the way, catch the audience, and then the body, and then the conclusion. And then how do I build a paragraph? This is how I build it. And then incidentally, in my work in the academia, there is a course that is compulsory for students, which is about writing and study skills. So as I helped my students to write, I would help them to write their answers that they are making sense, they are being interesting, and then they are putting across certain points And then they are also putting across a conclusion. So that was like the basic level. But really, my writing has been for conferences. And I wouldn't say I was very strong on that. I would write some ideas, but they would just end somewhere. Actually, most of my conference files have not been published. And so I was wondering, do I write and they were not published? So I've had to sit back and say, why? Why were they not published? And then maybe, uh, and I've also had to attend many workshops talking about writing and find out what is it that goes into a material that is publishable. 
So I have actually not had publications, although I have had responses from the conference asking me that, please, can you, can you polish up this paper so that we can publish it? But somehow I never followed up again because of my worksheet and whatever. So I have like several drafts somewhere just kept and I presented them at a conference, but then I wouldn't uh, go ahead to finish them up, mainly because of managing my time properly. So I think it is, it is at this time that I realized that papers should be written, scientific papers should be written in a certain way if they are to attract publication. Yes. So you're still working towards that goal at the moment? At the moment, I'm still working on it. Can you tell me in terms of the practicalities of, of the writing, do, do you write every, every day or do you write at the same time or in the same place? What are you in practice, the habits that you've developed? Or are you a very organized writer in writing whenever, wherever? Because some people have, have really got the discipline of writing every day at the same time. What, what's your own practical habits that you have when it comes to writing? I, I wouldn't say I have particular habits yet. <laughs> my my writing comes when I, 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 I set off block times to write. Like I have to write when I have a target. For instance, like now I'm writing to meet the deadline for my next uh, submission. And when there's a conference, I write to meet the target of the conference. And I just plan like this week I'm writing, then another week I may do be doing other things. So really, I've not had habits of writing. But in that block time, what I do is I, one thing I've done, especially in this lockdown, is set up a reading table and put there the things, that, the, the, the books that I'm going to read and then write. So that was also not there. And then in academia, we like not to have offices. We, we sit in the staff room. So it is so a bit disturbing. So I would think that I'll write anywhere. So I think I've been uh, organized in that area because I tend to think when I go there, I'll, do, I'll read, I'll write. Uh, then library. Sometimes library is the issue. I have to go to the library, so it's very quiet. When I sit in the library, then I have switched off everything. Then I can be able to read and write. So apart from that, I find my reading writing time a bit unorganized, except if I really, really have to be hit ahead like a deadline. Yeah. So for you, what works are deadlines, basically having set goals. What do you think that's up until now has been the most helpful in terms of helping you improve your writing? I mean, you said that you've attended some, some courses and that you've helped your students as well. What, are there other things that you feel that have really helped you in, in becoming a better academic writer? Yeah, other things uh, that have helped me, apart from short courses, also organized by the university. They, they usually organize short courses for academia to sort of polish up. I've also uh, attended to YouTube lectures. I try to listen to several, especially when I get somewhere and I get stuck, then I can find out is there a lecture on YouTube. For instance, I've attended several on uh, literature review. When I review the literature, 
And then I reach somewhere and I'm like, is it really flowing? Is it connected? What, what is the magic? There are friends of mine who teach uh, literature and languages. I may ask them, can you look at my draft and tell me what it is about? Then those ones can really help me to again pull up and uh, begin writing again. So that has been also very helpful. When we think about academic careers, people are not very highly paid. There is a lot of pressure and mm. so on. Why are you really in it? What's really the internal motivator for you to be carrying on on this challenging journey? Why is it worth it? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's worth it because, especially because in our context, I find that when we have a problem in the community, then I begin thinking about it. And I think about how can we address this? Who can address this? I begin uh, questioning certain problems which I see. I first see a problem and then begin thinking backwards. What, is, what can be said? Then I begin, say, write a, an abstract. When I do an abstract and I keep it, then I think about what else can I do about it? Can I read about it here and there? And then as a teacher also, I find that I am reading things from other continents. And I say, but some of these are not even context friendly. And I say, but can I write something here? Can I look for other literature from other people who have written something here? And then I try to contextualize in our own community because certain ideas which come from elsewhere may not be very much appreciated here. So I find that the need to teach my students the right thing drives me to write. But also it's interesting for me to always look for what else is there? What, what is behind this? What is the cause of this? What is, uh, what is the problem? And where is it coming from? And what can I do about it? Then obviously researchers are, are really rare. In a, Okay, there are few, I would say, in my context. If they're there, you have to look for them because they're actually busy. In our country now, researchers are also appreciated, but they are few. They are really few, and they are occupied most of the time. So even getting a supervisor, say, for my PhD was not easy because getting the people who really I, whom we think know, I have a lot of work. I have a lot of work. So I find that, okay, why do they have? <laughs> they have no time for us. So I'm like, okay, let me develop my career also so that I may be able to, to meet the gaps that are there in writing, in knowledge creation, and also in knowing more, being somebody who knows more and how to, to tackle it. What do you think would be your biggest achievement as a, as a lecturer and as a researcher? What is really the core thing of what you want to achieve? So it's kind of a big question, but if there is one thing that you feel this really, really matters to me, that's really what I want to address. Yeah, what I want to achieve is to, is to get the skills of being able to find out. I always want to find out and I want to get the skill and the confidence to reach that self-esteem of knowing that I can. I, I can look for some ideas and I find them and be able to write them and communicate them where they are necessary. And also to be well-equipped, to be more competent, and also to have confidence in myself and to offer competences to others. For instance, my students, I want them to have the competences. From my fieldwork experience, I found that 
maybe we don't send competent personnel to the field. So I want to be that competent person who can have many skills and knowledgeable to, to, to be able to provide a well-researched material that is scientific and also offer it in the best way. In the time that you've spent navigating the waters of academia and especially being a woman in academia, being a mother and having to juggle so many things, what do you think has been the most helpful to you to build your own confidence and to feel that you can follow the path that you really want to follow? What's helped you the most in, in your journey? Yeah, what has helped me most is, is there are other role models. My role models in my department, we at some point dominant, predominantly women. And these have been my role models. I keep looking at them that if they can, then I should be able to do. And the other thing is I want to get something to the end. I may delay, but persistence helps me to say, I, even if I delay, I will one day I will arrive to that place. I will get to know. So that drives me to say that I will accomplish something at the right time. When it comes, it will be complete. For instance, it is not easy to, to study within Uganda, in my country. Uh, there are many okay errands, there may be traffic jams and whatever. But I've told myself, I'm home and I will study and I will complete. One day I'll complete and have the competences that I need. So whether it delays or not, I know that sometime I will be able to complete it and it will be that valuable item that I've always looked at. So there are lots of researchers who are at master level who may have done a, you know, master, a master thesis research project or people who have bachelor and who may be in, in the, the period of deciding whether or not to do a PhD and who may ask themselves, who am I going to do a PhD with? Should I go overseas? What are really the questions that they, they should be asking themselves in terms of deciding what to study with whom and where? What questions do they really need to ask themselves to make, de- to make decisions that really are the best decision for themselves? Yeah, I think the questions they should be asking themselves is to why, where to find support, academic learning support, and how to, to get an environment, an environment within our context. Because the environment is not like you would if you went abroad, but the uh, local environment has some resources, so they should be looking at available resources within their context. And they should think about our own context as an area of study. They should ask whether they have interest in that area to study because we have research needs. We have research needs. And also they are resource people, but who are very few and not easy to find. So they need to have to tap into those few resources and find them and see how best to use them. And then they should ask more about the, for uh, available resources such as internet, for instance. Internet has come that is very helpful because even the resources that are far away are likely to be brought close to them. So the most important question they should have is their interest, their drive, their motivation, 
and then the rest they can always find them out. They can also ask about funding. There could be different solutions to funding, although it can be a challenge. So they should kind of have in mind to prepare for how to look for available resources and then the how far they can take them. So studying abroad could have issues like family. Are leaving the family for a long time? It is also a question. There is also balancing between work. They should have time, actually a lot of time to study. So balancing the time, balancing the interest to study is another area they should find out more about before engaging into a PhD journey. A lot to think about for all these new upcoming researchers, eh? Yes. <laughs> well, I think that we're going to bring our discussion to a close. I don't know whether there is anything you would like to say to the NEMRA community in terms of your own experiences and share wisdom. I have something to share with them that joining a, a network like NEMRA is very interesting because you find support. And the support is almost comes at the time when you need it, because whenever an, uh, a seminar is arranged, there will be a speaker or there will be colleagues, peers who are talking about something that you need, that I need when I'm on the, on the journey. There could be one or two things in a day, and those could uh, make your day. They are... They are um, questions that you can have and you hang around them and get almost uh, derailed from study. But having a support group helps and has helped me to find a few ideas to make myself ready. And I would say if I was alone, because working it alone means getting somewhere, get stuck and then say, it seems I'm lost. And yet somebody has an experience to share. Somebody has a resource to share. Somebody has an idea to share uh, or a network to connect me to, and that has been very, very helpful. So I think the supportive groups are very, very important on the PhD journey. I think it's particularly interesting with uh, the NEMRA network is the peer-to-peer -peer support. Uh, mm -hmm. And like you said, if there are not so many very established uh, re researchers in Uganda, the demands on them is very high from lots of people who want their support. So building a, a community of researchers who are undertaking the PhD and who are early in their own career, supporting each other is even more important. And it's a really fascinating network that's becoming shaped by its own members. And hopefully yes. will be very, very impactful in Uganda over the years. It's really wonderful, wonderful initiative. It's been really a pleasure talking to you all mm -hmm. the way from the UK. That's the joy of Zoom and the internet for you is connecting yeah. across the land and seas. And I'm really, really pleased that we could have this conversation this morning for me and this afternoon for you. I hope to meet you again in some of the workshops that uh, I'll be involved in delivering for, for NEMRA. And uh, I wish you, uh, you know, a lovely evening. And uh, um, I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Asimwe. Okay. Goodbye. Thank you to look forward for the workshops. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion I had with my guest. 
I'm very grateful that you've been listening to us. I hope that you will join me in the future podcast. I wish you a very good day. And if you want to contribute to the podcast, I'm very interested to hear from you as I'm always happy to, to invite some new interviewee on this podcast. So if you've got an interesting story about life in research and about the research environment, get in touch with me at sandrine at tesseldevelopment.com.